Can you imagine it? Me trying to impress her. I was 19 years old, skinny as a tent peg, speaking Spanish with astounding confidence and an incredible amount of mistakes. Wearing women's clothes, and not just wearing women's clothes, but wearing really ugly women's clothes. Poorly fitting garments with clashing colours and patterns. Like, look at a peacock. A person should never dress like this. But as a young man, I did. I was dreadfully naive. A disgusting trait. And also the source of every achievement I have ever made. I was so devoted to telling the truth to everyone that I had to lie to myself as a protective mechanism. And so I can tell you I truly believed that I could read her palms. We were on the balcony of my rental house in Launceston and I pulled her hands under the lamplight and began to caress the lines there, uttering grave prognostications. You will know great sadnesses several times over. You will be a star of the stage. You will experience many loves and, hey, would you look at that? Some of them appear to be occurring really quite soon. Righto, my turn, she said, and pressed her thumbs hard into my wrist. I extended my fingers and she peered into the spider webs constructed in the skin of my palms. You're going to fuck off soon, she said. She was right. I'd been daydreaming about it for a long while. So I eventually said my farewells and sold all my possessions, which turned out to mostly be a bunch of women's clothes, and I bought a one-way ticket to India. I left my home in the early morning, the horizon quivering with the possibilities of the coming day, and by midnight I was being hurled into Mumbai. And that night I was invited to a mug of chai that had a whole bunch of ants floating on top of it. They'd been in the sugar bowl, so I gulped them down, swallowed the whole drowned army, and then lay out on a bedroll and fell into exquisite ant-fueled dreams. When I woke up, there was an early shade of yellow and a cacophony of noise coming from the city. And I had to follow the last scene that sleep had given me back into the narrative of that dream because I realised that I had been Krishna, the Hindu deity, blue-black rat bag who spun yarns and played the Pied Piper, an irrepressible flirt who pilfered butter from windowsills. I had seen myself in his guise, telling stories to an audience. And another thing. When I woke up, I noticed that there were two words in Sanskrit inexplicably painted on the wall. Pranovirat, they said, or something like that.
Prano Varat, which means life is immense. I live in an old train carriage on the edge of a forest, somewhere nearish to the middle of Tasmania. The train carriage is off its tracks, of course, so it goes nowhere, stays stationary amidst the eucalypts and blackwoods, trees busy with birds, and in the midst of all sorts of other critters who come to me, whose, whose lives intersect with mine. And so I learn a lot about all the different ways you can go about life. All the patterns and rhythms and habits. And if I use my imagination, I think I can learn something of these other animals' hopes and dreams as well. There's this funny idiom that you might hear from Australians, mostly males, if you catch them somewhere that's not their home and ask them what they're doing there. Oh, just having a look, mate. So smooth, so understated, and yet that's kind of what it feels like I've been doing. I spent the last few years on the go, travelling far and wide, around the world and within Tasmania, not exactly with a purpose, searching for something or other, but now it's all come to a screeching halt. You might have heard uh, something to do with some global catastrophe or something. So for this season... At least I will sit in this train carriage, motionless but not without movement, for even now I find myself on great journeys, into the past maybe or just into my imagination, making long strides into my dreams. I once met a man who claimed that he was the only illiterate poet that I would ever meet. He was wrong but he was still an interesting bloke. He lived in a shack high up on the slopes of a pretty rugged mountain range where he said his only companion was a cloud, like an individual cloud of a specific shape who apparently shared his address. I visited his shack a few times, although shack is probably a, a generous term for it. It was more like a shed, a single room constructed of corrugated iron and scrap timber, a big fireplace in the centre, and actually reminiscent of a sea eagle's nest now that I think about it. He had a, a bed comprised of young eucalyptus branches that he freshened up every week or so. I occasionally wonder where the old fella is now. It's probably a pretty good chance he's dead, and if he's alive, I suspect he won't have heard much about the hullabaloo going on down here in the world, hermit that he is. Sometimes I see a cloud of certain dimensions and then I remember him. There's something interesting about him having chosen a cloud as a friend. Though he never really left the confines of his shed, the cloud could travel, carrying stories everywhere. I do think that, like Krishna through the fields of India, stories wander. Which makes me think of another thing that this old illiterate poet once said. Movement only has meaning against a backdrop of stillness.
and solitudes the dark earth, the seeds of your words need to grow. Don't be afraid of being alone. Don't be afraid of dirt or the cold. Don't fear these dark nights of the soul. I'm the only illiterate poet you'll ever know. You hear me? Don't be afraid of being alone. Don't be afraid. This train carriage that I live in is small in comparison to a house, but there's more than enough room for me. And I'm always throwing open the doors so I've got endless space. I'm two paces away from the great expanding universe. In the midst of this particular crisis, I've found myself wondering with whom I'd like to share this space, if I had to. There are many fine candidates. I'm fortunate to have plenty of good mates, all of whom would provide their own idiosyncratic entertainment throughout this isolation. But in truth, I think it's best to be alone, for this season at least. I don't want to sound like Henry bloody David Thoreau, the 19th century writer who wrote a bestseller about living off the grid. His book Walden, or... How good am I to have a fucking cabin by a pond? Is good in parts, but seems to neglect to mention the fact that he walked to his mum's every weekend to wash his clothes and eat her bickies. I too live near a family. They're the ones I rent this carriage from. And they let me use their amenities and sometimes eat tacos with them. And if I get crook, I reckon they'll drop a couple of bags of groceries on the front deck for me which I suspect is more than I can say for the cockatoos and fairy wrens round here. Once, for just a night, I shared a smaller space than this with an unusual companion. I'd been hiking on a certain ridgeline in Japan and on the third afternoon I arrived at a shelter just as a storm exploded like an overripe fruit. This shelter was just a curved sheet of tin fixed to the ground. I crawled into that half cylinder onto the chipboard flooring. There was room for me and my backpack and nothing more, or so I thought. 
for after a while I heard scuffling under one of the sheets of chipboard, which had warped and was no longer flush against the wall. I peered over to that corner and saw about as thin as a bit of electrical wiring, a dark grey snake. It looked nonchalantly at me as I tried to shoo it out with slams and shouts, but no matter what imprecations I called out, it wouldn't budge. So I let it be. And that night, as I cooked dinner, I started singing. It was an old Japanese poem that I'd been keeping in my head as I'd walked along, but finally I warbled it out into the empty evening as the squall began to pass. Karakasa no hone wa bara bara. The ribs of the umbrella are broken. The snake looked at me directly as I sung those lyrics, as if it were in a language that it could comprehend. We held each other's gaze for a minute. Then it relaxed and retreated into its hiding place. Night fell, and I slept, hoping, I admit, that I wouldn't find the snake in my sleeping bag when the morning came. At sunrise, I had to leave to tackle the final mountain peak of the range and then descend. There was no sign of the dark grey snake. And we never saw each other again. I think often on all the tracks I've taken throughout my life. The paths and pads roads and routes, tracks that took me to peaks or along creeks or even into caves, trails that followed the contour of the countryside or went against the grain, ladders of stone over saddles, roads that were endless, tracks that bifurcated and replicated themselves without restraint, various ways that represented various waylaid plans. A more meticulous person would count up all the kilometres, but I hardly care for that. What I think about is how these tracks took me towards and then away from places and from others. The state of solitude is something that I'm comfortable with, but sometimes I miss a person so much that it hurts. Then I remember that they are on tracks of their own. And I think how lucky we were that they ever converged. Even for a moment. And like I said, the tracks keep going. And sometimes two tracks can somehow come to cross paths once again, perhaps in a completely different place. I was standing in the middle of a high country heath when... An old school friend came traipsing across the coral fern from half a lifetime ago. And so we held hands. And a few days later we passed out of each other's lives again. You'll always have to say goodbye. But sometimes you're compensated with reunions so beautiful that the farewells seem worthwhile.
I took a train across the broad chest of India. The journey started in Mumbai Central Station, but its departure was delayed for a long time and I dozed off when I finally felt us shunting out off the platform. Suddenly this man came bustling through the carriage, shouting in Hindi or Marathi. I barely understood a word, but I, I got the idea that he wasn't meant to be travelling with us. That perhaps he was farewelling a friend or a loved one when the train started and he hadn't managed to jump off in time. Soon he'd gone crashing out of earshot, and I relaxed again and reclined and figured he'd just get off at the next stop and work out how to get back. So I started to have another kip. When I woke up, I realised that some hours had passed and we didn't seem to have stopped at any stations in the meantime. That man was still trapped on board against his best intentions and And now his experience started to meld with my perception. This happens to me sometimes. And so I felt like I was that man. My head against the barred windows of the train as a straw-coloured dawn started to spread across the rural districts of central India. And from this enforced distance, I watched a variety of individuals begin another day in their lives. The land was arid and stretched out for miles. Canals watered fields of corn, cows worked without ceasing. I took a cup of chai and drank it quietly, acquiescing to my new life on this train. There were 20 or 30 hours to go till we got to Calcutta, but I got the feeling that this was my dharma my destiny now, to ride the rails eternally on a different version of the wheel of life. And when I got to Howrah Station sometime tomorrow, I might just jump on this same long-haul train and return to whence I came. And maybe I could do that forever. But nah. (laughs) The train stopped and that bloke got off, fuming, swearing, huffing and puffing in Hindi, muttering in Marathi. And another fellow came over and gifted me a mandarin and then told me that he dreamed of being a film star. Do you know Nicole Kidman? And eventually I got off that train, stepped down into the world and carried on my journey proving to myself that the saying was true. Prano verat. Life is immense. been rereading the Odyssey, that old Greek story about a bloke who gets lost on his way home. He floats about the sea, blown between fantastical islands and curious acquaintances, and like the man himself, his adventures are neither all good nor all bad. 
But at the heart of the story, Odysseus gives a single line. There's nothing sweeter to a person than their native land, he says. There's nothing better than home. There are a couple of Greek words that are often used to describe old Odysseus, and one of them sticks in my brain. You'll have to forgive me if I mispronounce it, but I learnt my ancient Greek from a man who once interrupted our class when a car passed us by blasting pop music and turned to us and said a line that I don't think pops up in any of the thousands of lines of Homer's epic poems. Is that the Pussycat Dolls? Anyway, Odysseus is described as polytropos, much turning in the translation I've got. Odysseus is the traveller, the migrant who is adapting to every new circumstance, changing his mind, turning, yes, even twisting, but never losing his feet entirely, bending but not breaking, swaying with the ever-changing wind, always learning to take a new course. This is only one way to read it, but at least for now I see Odysseus as a man who is figuring out how to keep on going even when the rug's been pulled out from beneath him. I'm really grateful to have this old train as a home. It's a pretty fortunate place to wait out these difficult times, to weather this particular storm. It's not a palace, it doesn't even have electricity, but it absolutely fulfills my needs for now. For much of the last decade I have lived without a fixed address. Like Odysseus, I have bounced between destinations and adventures. He had his ship. At one stage, I had my 1992 Ford Laser, a charming little shitbox that I lived out of for a long while until it broke down, just like Odysseus's ship got smashed by the waves. But now I'm here, and the rug's been pulled out from beneath all of us. Like a lot of people, I've lost all my work for the foreseeable future. But I get the sense that being polytropos might just be a useful skill to cultivate. Discovering new ways of doing things, going from day to day, unable to resort to our habits, working with fewer resources, downsizing and plumbing the depths of ourselves. It's not an odyssey that we could have predicted or easily prepared for. But then, it's not really an adventure if you can expect it. It's not really an odyssey if it doesn't throw you in the deep end. <laughs>